Hello and welcome back to That HR Podcast, your favourite whistle-stop tour through the ever-changing world of work. I'm your host, Lauren Brown, and what an array of curiosities, experts and listener queries I have for you this month. It's trying to build yourself to have the conversations with the people that are in power, mm. without it being that you're, or you're too young or maybe yeah. you don't have the experience to voice it. Mm. But it's actually that you need it, you're lacking that perspective. This month we've asked our readers to get involved with helping us produce the magazine and we've welcomed a group of HR professionals into People Management Towers to give us their advice and wisdom. And, as a bonus, they got to spend some time putting their burning questions to CIPD Chief Executive Peter Cheese. Biomodal sleep is where you actually wake up at two in the morning and you work for a few hours in the middle of the night and then you go back to bed and have a second sleep before waking up at around 10 or what have you. There is something special about the time before everyone wakes up. There's something irresistible about the weird and wacky habits of the super successful. You couldn't make up the headlines about Tesla boss Elon Musk, black turtlenecks or sardine-only diets. But when the boundaries of the working day are stretched to the extreme, could there be negative ramifications? I spoke with an expert CEO coach to delve deeper. And Tim Pointer returns with Tim's Pointers. That's all to come. It's 4am, I'm just waking up and I'm hovering bleary-eyed and slightly dazed in my kitchen waiting for the kettle to boil so I can have a strong cup of black coffee. Why? I'm wondering the same thing, but tens of CEOs swear by hyper-early mornings and while I'm not going to go so far as to jump in a cryo-recovery chamber like actor Mark Wahlberg, I, like many others, am fascinated by what makes senior leaders tick. We all want to sneak a cheeky peek behind the curtain to discover just what helps CEOs get to the top and stay there. Is it 50 cups of coffee a day, working dawn till dusk, eating the same meal for weeks like Steve Jobs did, having your hair cut in the office and holding meetings during your trim? Which of these will optimise my productivity? Recently, entrepreneur Jack Ma said a 100-hour, six-day working week was a huge blessing. I know, same. And others reacted similarly. The founder of the internet giant Alibaba came under fire after he defended the so-called 996 week, a popular practice in Chinese tech firms. But are these leaders actually being productive or is our fetishisation of these eccentric CEO quirks unhealthy? What damage could leaders be having by broadcasting them? I'm going to meet up with one of London's top CEO coaches, Dave Bailey, to delve deeper. But first, I'm going to enjoy this coffee and maybe catch a few more Z's. So, David Bailey, thank you for joining us. How are you today? I'm really well. How are you? Yeah, very, very well. So, if you want to start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, a bit about the work that you do. Of course, yes. So, I'm a CEO coach, which I've been doing for the last few years, following a career being a founder and investor in early stage companies. So, over the last two years, I've focused on working with CEOs, helping them to build emotionally healthy, high-performing, fast-growth businesses. So obviously recently, Jack Ma, the CEO, came out as saying that 100-hour weeks were a blessing. Um, What is your immediate reaction to seeing these kind of statements? It is certainly a very provocative statement. My first reaction is that there's a huge spectrum of what healthy work looks like. 
And, you know, often when we look at studies, especially around the number of hours of productive work in a week, we're looking at averages. And the people who are attracted to building businesses and becoming CEOs are often not in the middle of the bell curve. They're sort of towards one end. So my reaction is it might well work for some people, but it might not work for everybody. So it isn't necessarily a case of they're just boasting, you know, they actually really do do this. The CEO timetable is packed. Is that true in your experience? In my experience, it is. So I work with founder CEOs that have decided that they want to build a high growth business, which is uh, perhaps the difference between a startup and a small business is a startup wants to be a big business as quickly as possible. I think we are living in an age where, especially for tech founders and founders of businesses, there's a huge expectation that the outcome has to be, you know, a billion dollars. It wasn't, I mean, when I started building tech companies, it was about 12 years ago, and really a million was like considered a big win. If you could sell your business for a couple of million, that was huge. Now it's, um, to some investors, that's seen as a huge, a huge loss, a huge missed opportunity. You know, in the context of billion dollar businesses, there's a huge amount of pressure, and it's not for the faint hearted. I mean, I think any creative endeavor, it's very easy to underestimate how long things take. I mean, I remember, I'm sure you guys, you know, when you're doing your podcast and people see how long the podcast is and they're like, well, that should probably take about an hour to pull together, right? And I can see you're nodding because it doesn't. It takes a long time. <laughs> that happens all the time in a tech startup. Almost every area of the business is like, yeah, that should take three months. And it doesn't. It takes a lot longer and there's a lot more things that we haven't expected. So it does drive a long, a long work week. I think hours is certainly a proxy for the ability to have your needs met as a kind of as a human being while meeting needs of the business. See, I think this that's, is, that's what I wanted to ask you because mm. I wanted to know, you know, how many hours can you productively work in a day or a week? I know we've said that people work differently, mm. but is this even a helpful way of, of uh, measuring so productivity? I think it's a really useful proxy for some people, but not for others. So I'll give you an example. So I, I have a belief that if people have their fundamental needs met, and this is things like a need for sleep, a need for good food, a need for social connection, a need for solitude, a need for exercise. If those needs are being met, a need for family, these needs facilitate productive work. So it, when you're in your element, you know, when, I, when, I'm, when I'm in a state of flow and I'm really enjoying what I'm doing, the, the hours just pass by and I'm not counting the hours. You know, if you ask me how many hours I work in a week, it's really hard for me to count because it's, it's kind of blended. I'm very lucky because the nature of, the, of my work is very high connection. And that's one of, I think, one of the areas where we end up missing out on in certain types of work. I think it can be quite depressing when we don't have that need for connection, whether that's connection with others or connection with ourselves. If that need is, is missing, then I think it can, it can really affect our productivity. I think it's really interesting what you said as well about, you know, CEOs by virtue of having that drive and having that entrepreneurial spirit of wanting to start a company. They are probably already ahead of the bell curve yeah. in terms of how much work they're doing and how much work they're willing to do. But I guess that also kind of goes towards myth this mythologization of the CEO as being somebody who's different or being somebody who has that little je ne sais quoi. But actually, CEOs set the tone of a company. If I'm a, uh, an employee coming in on the bottom line and I hear statements like that, mm. what effect is that going to have on me? Yeah, so at the point where I start working with the CEO, it's typically with the ambition of taking the company from sort of tens of people to hundreds of people. And there are a few challenges that CEOs face in that journey. 
one of them is is just a time crunch because at the very early stage when you're you're thinking about you know a team working in a garage you know to follow the mythology building a product the ceo is taking a lot of decisions but that doesn't scale so there are a lot, lot of things that don't scale and put a lot of pressure on on the calendar so one of the things that for example i do with ceos is to review their calendar and figure out what meetings are essential what are less essential and focus on the most important meetings to get them right the idea of being if you can get a really really good leadership meeting it actually eliminates the need for further meetings etc so there's certainly i think a difference in role depending on the size of the company and also a difference in the, the roles within the function so at the beginning it's very project based there are you know this sort of creating and we know this creative process is very painful and very time consuming for a big company it's more like continuous operations and day in day out we know what works and we're just trying to get incrementally better over time so subtly different challenges so there's a bit of a roundabout way to get back to your question is if you're coming into an, a very early stage company or a very kind of uncertain environment then you should expect there's going to be a high high degree of uncertainty everything's going to be unfinished and lots of drivers to make us want to work more if you're coming into a more established company with much more of a focus on sustained working then you're going to have a very different relationship with your work. So I do think that there's a certain element of fit. I mean, if you're looking for for example a 40-hour work week, I absolutely wouldn't recommend a small business or a startup. It's unlikely that those two are, are that compatible. Yeah, I see what you mean and I you know the CIPD and Simply Health's report from the start of April found, you know, presenteeism is rising and there isn't feeling that, you know, you have to turn up to work, you have to show up. How else can I differentiate myself from the pack but when I hear that my immediate thought goes to Elon Musk when he said that he hadn't taken a day off since 2001 and even then that was because he had malaria so if you are an employee and the CEO is sending a message of I haven't taken any holidays what is the impact going to be on that is there not a certain kind of responsibility Mm. for the CEO to set the tone there's a huge resistance. I've, I've witnessed this in my work, a resistance to taking time off, especially two weeks. If there are any Americans listening, that's their entire annual leave. But <laughs> for us Europeans, that's a small part. And the number of people that I, I can see have never, haven't taken holiday in a few years. And as for the message, it, that's a really t- difficult one to answer because there is something about seeing leadership as focused and purpose-driven and serious. I mean, Elon put all of his savings into his companies when no one else believed in this sort of vision around electric cars. It's incredibly inspiring. So it's a kind of a double-edged sword. On, On the one hand, I'm actually very inspired by Elon and what he's managed to achieve in the world. But can I see that would would add added pressure to the front line? Yeah, I can see that too. And, you know, on the one hand, we can say they should be leading by example. Um, If they want to get a healthy workforce, then they should also adopt healthy habits. But on the other hand, on an individual level, isn't this a kind of wider cultural phenomenon in the UK anyway? We're all guilty of going to the pub and, you know, saying to our friends, whinging about the working week, like I've worked so many hours. Mm. Whereas actually there is a kind of slight boss there, isn't there? Do you think maybe this is just something that within our culture there isn't a a culture of overworking to kind of differentiate ourselves the way i would come at this is you know i mentioned hours is a proxy another way of looking at it is are we kind of getting our needs met are we in a happy place where we're actually doing productive work right and i think the link between how do you manage a huge workload in the context of meeting your own needs too i think it largely comes down to 
taking emotional responsibility and learning a skill, which is a skill that I, I work a lot on with, with my clients, which is emotional self-reflection. So really piecing together what triggers negative emotions, whether that's anxiety, tiredness, unhappiness, and then what behaviors do those emotions carry through? So the people who are, let's say, boasting about the work week, I think it's particularly interesting in the context of how aware are they of maybe the behaviors we can all see that they might not be able to. Like, yes, okay, you're working hard, but your relationship's a mess and you're constantly shouting at people and pretty self-obsessed. You're talking about work all the time. So again, connecting that back to the emotional stimulus of maybe feeling overwhelmed or maybe feeling shame, like they're not good enough or they're really trying to assert themselves socially. And then what's actually driving that? I think that's quite quite an interesting topic. Because I guess it is a case of potentially reevaluating the way that we look at productivity. I personally, maybe I shouldn't say this, but mm. I personally, you know, I probably have a, a solid four hours really intense productivity in me per day. I can do the really hard bits in about four hours. And then maybe the rest of it, I'm doing admin, phone calls, that kind of thing. And I guess what I achieve in that three hours or four hours, that doesn't sound like a long amount of time, but I might achieve more in bursts like that than I would if I worked for 12 mm. hours a day. So I guess potentially, like you say, it is about taking a step back and looking at what productivity is mm. rather than putting a time scale on it, do you think? Well, I think there's always different ways to looking at it. So for example, I have a, f- a few questions for you. So you mentioned that in a day, it's typically four hours where you can get really productive time. Can you describe the environment you're in when you're doing productive work? I guess for me personally, it's uh, it's very quiet. You know, I'm not on my phone. I'm not clock watching. Mm-hmm. It's kind of what you said earlier about you, you hit your stride yes. and you're so involved in a task that the world kind of drops away and you're just doing the thing. And I think that level of intense focus, you can't expect that to last all day. And this is why I get skeptical when I hear people saying that I worked 12 12 hours today because there are different kinds of working, I find. And actually talking about it like this, a 100 hour work week is an excellent thing. Yes. For me, I think, well, what kind of work are you doing there? Right, well, I'd like to expand on that a little bit more. So let me paint a picture for you. Let's imagine that there was no admin. There were no notifications. You didn't have your phone, but you were on a desert island with no distraction whatsoever. I feel very zen all of a sudden. <laughs> I feel very zen, right? But do you think you could crank out more creative work in a state where there were just no distractions at all? I think that's a really interesting question because for me personally, again, I'm just taking it all the way down the rabbit hole mm-hmm. now. Let's go. The idea of what a distraction is is also an interesting question mm. because I actually find talking to others really stimulating Mm. and a lot of ideas will come so I always it always used to make me laugh when I was at university and people would be in the library for six hours and they'd be sitting on like a wooden chair like reading Shakespeare with like a really stiff back and I was just like you can do it in the pub you know like with a glass of wine with your friends and actually some of the best ideas I have are when I've put the work away and I'll go and have a chat with someone and I'll get ideas. Right. So I think, again, it is restructuring what the working day is for you, which is why I'm very sceptical about these blanket statements about 100-hour work weeks, etc. Right. But what's quite interesting for, for me is that I think when we refocused on the environment, I already learned a bit about you. So I know that you drive off connection about sort of brainstorming. This is a big creative source for you. But then also having that kind of that ability to be in a state of flow And then if we think about a business where, I mean, I work with startups, it's complete chaos. There's a huge amount of 
crises at any point in time. Every opportunity is also a crisis. Every failure is a crisis. So where do you get that sustained time to get into a state of flow? I don't know if you relate to this, but one meeting in the afternoon can basically destroy all of the creativity in that afternoon. Because before the meeting, you're kind of, you don't want to get into a creative task because you know you're going to have to come out of it. During the meeting, obviously, you're not working. And then after the meeting, there's the fallout from what happened in the meeting. So there's this useful concept. It's not my concept. It's by an essayist called Paul Graham called the maker's schedule and the manager's schedule. Now, the manage- manager's schedule is divided up into discrete, usually half an hour or one hour blocks. And they're all meetings. The creative, the, the maker's schedule is really extended period of uninterrupted time for deep creative thought. So one of the things that I work with my clients on is actually carving out time for creative, strategic work proactive work rather than sort of the reactive work that we can find ourselves dropping into. And my my conjecture is you mentioned, you know, in in a day you kind of divide it up into the creative flow type moments and then the admin dealing with, you know, the inbound reaction stuff. It's very easy to place our attention on the inbound versus actually carving out time for that creative work. And I guess to bring that back to HR then, what can employers be doing to encourage this kind of personal agenda setting, if you will? What can we do to try and get the best out of our employees who are different kinds of learner? You know, I might be productive in the morning, but other people are productive in the afternoon. What can what can employers do to encourage that? There's been a huge trend over the last years towards open plan offices. I think they're a disaster for creative work. I'm not, I'm not suggesting we all go back to cubicles, but I think just recognizing the challenge. I mean, and so what happens? How do we compensate for that? We put on headphones and we work in silence in a group. It's a little bit depressing if when you walk into an off, a modern office these days. It's eerily quiet and it's sort of connection without connection. So I think one area that I think there's, that, that could be very fruitful is to try and carve out this need for creative space and uninterrupted time, which may involve some element of solitude and deep connection. I think we actually are living in a time where we're we're not getting either need met. We're not really getting our need for solitude met. All your listeners are listening to a podcast and the input from our minds is going into their minds. Solitude would be defined as the absence of input from anybody. And then deep connection. I mean, you know, when there's so much going on, we could be having a conversation with someone and, you know, that we got a vibration in our pocket. Our head is not fully present to enter that level of deep connection. So I think fostering environments that are conducive to deep connection and to solitude. And I guess in terms of being an employee, it's probably as well about training line managers to be open to different kinds of working. You know, you kind of want to foster a culture where I can go to my line manager and say, you've given me this task. I think I can do my best work on this if I maybe go away for an hour and be, you know, be somewhere quiet. And I guess it's just creating a maybe communicative culture, would you say? Mm, Absolutely. I I don't think that emotional self-awareness is just for leaders. I mean, if someone has come to the insight that actually in order to do a creative piece of work, they're much better off taking time you know, in this particular environment or what have you, or they prefer a meeting to, you know, brainstorming meeting that they'd like to lead. I think it's very important to encourage that self-inquiry and then give them the channel for them to, to voice that feedback. Again, this is another area I think that's worth mentioning that feedback is not something that it's not an ideal where just talking about encouraging it is enough. I think you need to make it mandatory. You need to make it default. Having a process where you can actually 
figure out what people's ideal environments are, really making sure that conversation happens as, as a manager to allow people to have the environment to do their best work. I think that's a great point because I think we've kind of come around to the idea that, you know, burnout can only come really if we're forcing ourselves to work lots of hours. You know, we're not working in the way that works best for us. So actually, is workaholism always a bad thing? If someone enjoys and finds purpose in their job, should we condemn them for spending too long at it? Like, aren't entrepreneurs who put in ridiculous hours actually what drives the economy? Do we need these people? Yeah, so I mean, I'd look at it without judgment on the hour side, but more, you know, what is the impact on the people around this person? I mean, if they're working themselves to the bone, and they become completely obsessed with work to the point where they can't actually maintain social relationships, where their health is going out the window, and it's having a, a kind of a negative impact on the people around them. I think that's the point at which Perhaps there's been a lack of self-awareness on the part of the individual. So as a final mm. question, you, you know, you coach CEOs. I'm going to create like a really horrible caricature here. I don't sure. want to offend any sure. wonderful CEOs. But in my head, I've got the idea of a, you know, a CEO comes to you and he's like, yeah, I work 200 hour weeks. Like I kind of go to the pub with my employees and I'm like, yeah, gosh, I was up till midnight last night. What advice would you give them about that? Yeah, okay, I can't take the bait because one of my guiding principles is I, I just don't give advice and I'm not here to sort of sit and say, oh, well, that's wrong. I will say that has, you know, in, in the many years I've been coaching, that's never happened. Okay, I've never had a client come to me with that kind of bravado about work life. I, well, there's a gap in the market for me then. There's a gap in the market. to invest in right. my company. <laughs> I mean, there could be a bias there. It could be the people who who say that sort of thing aren't looking for coaches or don't want to work with a coach. So there is certainly a correlation between people who are self-aware and are striving for an increased self-awareness and people who look at coaches. That said, I would definitely go in and start asking questions about where time is spent and really get into the details to understand what work is productive and to really cut stuff out that is not productive. I think the biggest issue with working long, long hours is not having enough time to think, to be present, to be connected to the people around us and to listen. So that's something I would try and inject in with a, with a lot of curiosity and a lot of trying to see it from their point of view before going in and making advice. I don't think generic advice would make any difference. So is it safe to conclude that I don't have to get up at five in the morning and go for a run to be successful? Is Can we get this on record? No, I think you should. Uh, no, I'm only joking. <laughs> it's quite interesting. I'm not going to. <laughs> not, not to. Not to completely reopen this again. There's there's a bit of a, tr- not a trend. I mean, there's, a, there's uh, on the fringes, on the extremes, there's this idea of bimodal sleep. Sleep. I don't know if you've come across this one now. No. This is where you wake up. Doesn't sound very restful. Well, it's interesting. Well, I, I'm, I, I don't have the full information on the science. I'm sure your listeners might have more information than I do. But biomodal sleep is where you actually wake up at two in the morning and you work for a few hours in the middle of the night, and then you go back to bed and have a second sleep before waking up at around ten or what have you. Now, I have not done it myself, but I did take my girlfriend to the airport. It was three o'clock in the morning and I wanted to take the tube back. So I said goodbye to her and I had this two hour gap and I hadn't had my laptop with me. So I did some work at like 3.30 a.m. And boy, it was the, you know, when you, like you say, I was in the zone. I got so much done in in those two hours. There is something special about the time before everyone wakes up that's that's underused i don't know if it's if it's good for you or not but But i guess it's a case of finding your own rhythm and trying different things isn't it you don't have to do these things to be successful but if that's what works for you absolutely go for it absolutely go for it fantastic well thank you so much david for joining us thanks for having me 
People management readers got a special treat this month when they spent time mulling important HR matters with CIPD Chief Executive Peter Cheese. And they started off by asking him about the state of the profession in 2019. I think for the profession, we're in, a, in, a, in many ways at a point of change and transition. I've never seen more debate about things like the future of work. I've never seen more on the business and political agendas, many of the things that we care about as a profession, you know, well-being and inclusion and all these sorts of things. But there's also pressure from us to be more commercial, huge amounts on how we use technology, how technology is influencing work, how we understand data and all its different forms and so on. So I think that creates great opportunity, but it's also, as I said, putting additional demands and expectations on the profession. And hence, I would say that we're at a really interesting point in time of transition, where we we have this opportunity to truly take our place, which I think is the rightful place for HR, the very heart of business. Because I'm often reminded of a quote that somebody told me who was head of one of the big accounting bodies. He said, you know, there are only two things you have in business. One is money, and the other is people. And I think it's very true. So that's how I tend to characterise it. And I think if we think about it in those ways, we can think about, okay, so where are we moving from to? What are the big changes we have to make as a profession? And And part of it is about investing in ourselves and having a bit more of the confidence and courage to make the difference, which we know is so important in so many businesses. We've all read the stories of the demise of HR. We're either going to be taken over by technology and it'll all be done by some machine, or we don't need it because actually line managers, don't they do this stuff? And if I've got a good line manager, everything's fine. But yeah, every time you see those examples where... Some has decided they don't need HR. But I think, you know, as I said, as part of our shift and change, it's this sort of really realigning back to our purpose, what are the key things we're trying to do as a profession, what are the things that are most important now. So I think a reaffirmation, however you call it, but I think it is, as I said at the beginning, an important time for us to reflect on what are we driving for, what's our purpose as, as a function. And hence we talked about, you know, it was one of the first things I did when I joined the CIPD, because I said, so what's the purpose of the CIPD? And there's all this sort of woolly language about science of HR or something. And I said, well, it's all very interesting, but actually it doesn't inspire me, it doesn't make me get out of bed. Uh, and also because we were doing many more things as, as an institute besides certification and qualification. We were doing a lot on policy and trying to influence change and so forth. So, so we, we came out with this, this idea of championing better work and working lives, which I think... I think it's quite a good analogy for what we're all about. And when we do that stuff well, it's good for people, it's good for organisations, it's good for economies, and ultimately, and I see this more and more, it's good for society. Mm. I was really interested, you're only three years in and you're Mm. studying now, because I uh, did some teaching on the CIPD, so those people coming forward into the profession, what they're coming into it for, because I know why I came into it. Mm I wanted to be a social worker when I was at university <laughs> and then I went and did a placement and I didn't like it because it was just too dark. Mm-hmm. So I thought, I'll go into industry because everyone kept telling me to go into industry. It misdirects you a little bit if you think you're going into it for salvaging other people. You know, yeah. because, and I think we're at the cusp of people saying, are we a people service or are we a transactional service mm-hmm. or are we a risk preventing service mm-hmm. and are we there for the employer or are we there for the employee and that debate seems to be circling around I keep reading about it mm-hmm. and I know from my point of view I was always there to protect the risk 
That's what I always felt. I was there for the, I was employed to protect the risk and take people with me as I protected the risk and keep the information sharing going in the conversation. But I just wonder why you came into it, because when I teach on that programme, there's all sorts of different reasons yeah. why yeah. people coming into, and what they call it, because are you going into a people role or are you going into a resources role or a transactional role? I studied psychology while I was at university and I really liked looking at people's behaviour, how one person's personality and working in a team can affect business outcomes or just working as a team in general. So when I then was looking for jobs, I was like, oh, I was reading about it, saw HR and how, well, it was focused on the people function and I enjoyed that. So I was like, I can come in, work with different people and then use my psychology background, whether it's HR metrics tests or personality yeah. tests and look at how I can improve or help teams to then make a better function for the business. And I think when we started out, I think sometimes we lack that confidence and the courage yeah. to actually yeah. do what we're, I suppose many of us came into the business, you know, into the industry to do. Yeah. So we take on that role of, you know, employers telling us that, you know, we'll need to go and fire this person. Sometimes mm-hmm. we're not even clear as to why mm-hmm. we need to, to do that. And we don't even know if it's really following the correct processes yeah. before we do some of these things. But um, we sort of don't have the confidence to say, well, actually, you know, yes, I'm here to, as you say, manage the risk of the business, but I'm also here to stand up for employees yeah. and yeah. ensure that they're being treated yeah. fairly. Yeah. And so I think sometimes having that courage to stand in that difficult place where those who maybe are senior to you are sort of giving you a very clear direction on how yeah, they want yeah, you to, to, yeah. to proceed. Yeah. And you sort of understand from that sort of values-based you know, connection, I think, that we all probably have as to why we, as, you know, sort of which influenced us to come into um, HR, yeah. that kind of understanding that, well, this isn't really the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. But in those sorts of difficult moments, sometimes as a profession, as a body, we haven't really stood up and allowed ourselves to be sort of counted when it yeah. really counted. And yeah. so people do have those perceptions, yeah. and that's partly because we've you've sort of helped that to happen. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's a really important point. I mean, I, yes, I, I see that. I talk to lots of HR people about that yeah. kind of conflict because we do. I mean, your, your point earlier, Vanessa, that are we part of management, are we you know, representing management yeah. or employees? And that's yes, it's yeah. both. Yeah. Um, but we have to have the courage to challenge management. Yeah. We often talk about the younger generation as being more prepared to sort of speak up. <clears throat> Actually, with a frame of reference, it also is that a lot of the things that we might have thought was okay are not okay. <laughs> um, so I don't know if you have a perspective on that, but I, I think a lot of us have observed the younger generation comes into work and says, well, I didn't think that was acceptable, and why do you do it this way, and why can't I do that anyway? I think there's more of a forum for us to come forward and point things out, yeah. which is really it's encouraging. It kind of challenges me to be more confident and courageous in what I believe in and bring it forward. Yeah, mm-hmm. It's something that the business just might have overlooked yeah. and having that perspective yeah. then it could be appreciated which is wonderful but um, I think also it's trying to build yourself to have the conversations with the people that are in power mm. without it being that you're or you're too young or maybe yeah. you don't have the experience to voice it yeah. but it's actually that you need it you're lacking that perspective because yeah. you're, you're going from a, an antiquated way of looking at mm. things mm. where you may not have even taking the time to mm. really think and I think that's why it's good to have a diverse workforce yes. from age and also from ethnicity from every, as well every, every angle yeah, yeah.
it's important. I suppose partly because you've grown up in a world where you've been encouraged to speak up yeah. a bit more. It, we debate this sort of shift from what was in the past collectivism to individualism. In other words, you know, our generations, unions, it was all a collective voice, and now it's much more, no, but I've got my voice, and you're going to hear it. And if you don't listen to it, I'm going to put it on social media anyway. Um, uh, And it's good. I I really believe it's a good thing. I think genuinely the younger generation has made us think or question a lot of things we've taken for granted for a very long time. Finally, the man of the moment is back. It's Tim Pointer. How are you? Really top of the tree. How are you? Top of the tree. I've never actually heard that before. I like that. I'm also top of the tree. Thank you. (laughs) I'll dive right in. So this person says, I've been in my current job for a year and I feel I was missold the role. It's my first job in HR and I thought joining a really small team, it's now only me and the HR manager, would be a great opportunity to really get stuck in and develop the skills I need for my career. But instead, I've been lumped with lots of admin and I feel stuck. What would you advise? Got some really powerful words, aren't there? Stuck, missold, lumped. You immediately, immediately you feel for this individual. And I think that's probably at the heart of the conundrum. You know, how do you turn some of that into feeling that you're empowered, that you can make a difference, and this can be a learning experience for you? So thinking about this, if this person steps into the future a year from now, What stories would they like to be able to tell? What experience would they like to have gained through doing this job so that they could turn some of those negative phrases around into some really positive stories? Because one way of tackling this is to think, what interview examples do I want to give in terms of the projects that I've led and the exercises that I've implemented, which demonstrate that this has been a learning experience you have had to do go through the hard yakka of actually doing the administration and the rest of it. Yes, yes, yes. That's experience because, trust me, from my experience through doing those admin tasks, you do build a deep understanding of the business which puts you in a greater feeling of knowledge later on in your career. Anyway, what tasks would you like to be able to be referring back in a year's time? Is there a piece of work that you could lead around? Brexit implementation, for example. How about the gender equality reporting, which the business will be working on? How about the work that you're leading on productivity? All of these pieces that you can put your hand up and say, I will still get the admin side of the role done, but I want to have more of a management task in terms of getting involved in those projects. So that'd be my first question. My second question would be, in terms of that broader piece of learning, would the business support you in further study? So that also at the same time, you could be building up external study or external qualification so that we can turn this negativity into A, great experience, B, an externally recognised qualification. And, you know, if, for example, they try these things with their employer and they still feel like it's not working out, they do have the experience to move on. Yeah, and it may come to that point, but it takes... I'm looking I suppose I'm looking for some hits of dopamine in the short term. You know, finding that positivity of I feel that I'm building something in the role that I'm doing at the moment. They might move on it in six months' time, absolutely. But just finding that greater sense of achievement and progression in the work they're doing at the moment, I think it would be a really positive step forward. And that's it from this edition of That HR Podcast. Thanks to Dave Bailey and of course Tim Pointer. 
You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on our website, peoplemanagement.co.uk. Go ahead and rate us. We'd love to see your comments and use the hashtag thathrpodcast on Twitter to share your views. If you want to get involved, just send a note to pmeditorial at haymarket.com. I'm Lauren Brown. Our producer was Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio, and we will see you next month.